J Cut, and this is the K Cut. Welcome back, everybody. I'm your host, James, uh, creator of all things content. I release and produce music under the alias Boutique Paul, and I'm also host of the Prefer Not to Say podcast, but I am not the only one here. I'm Rachel, and I am a person who loves film and language. I'm about to start an exciting new film writing venture, so I guess you'll have to stick around to hear about it next week. Ooh, please tell me more about that. I have no idea what you're talking about. This is Andreas. <laughs> I am a CEO and a main editor of Films Fatale. I'm a master's graduate in film preservation and collections management, and we're here to talk about films. So let's get down to it. So we have a very interesting topic today, something that I think has come across all of our plates as cinephiles. Let's discuss adaptations. So we're going to discuss adaptations that affected us because we saw the film, we related it to the source material, and we decided, was this a good adaptation? Was this bad? What is a good adaptation? Does that necessarily mean that it's word-for-word word accurate, or it has some creative embellishments. Rachel, what is your adaptation, and why was it effective, good or bad? Well, I'm going with Cabaret, which was 1972. Amazing. It was adapted from a stage musical, of course. And the thing is, the movie and the show are entirely different things. They kept the bare bones of the stories, but they changed all the characters, most of the songs, the biggest difference is in the stage show, the, like most musicals, the characters just sing whenever they feel like it. But in the movie, the songs are generally uh, diegetic. They're part of the story. So you hear it on the stage of the cabaret or at a community sing song, that kind of thing. And so it really changes the vibe of the film. And I think even though it is extremely different, and this is a very serious debate for cabaret fans, I honestly think the changes were a great idea and they adapted it very well to film, even though it completely changed the musical. The musical as well is one of my favorites and I think it was it stands very strongly in its own. But the movie, you know, it was directed by Bob Fosse. He actually won Best Director over Francis Ford Coppola in The Godfather. And I've never heard anybody dispute that because I think he managed to change that transition from stage to film so well. The new characters are interesting enough to stand on their own. The music is great and it fits in with the more realistic tone of a movie. I just think it's a stunning change and it really worked well, even though it wasn't all that faithful. Yeah, because when you gave us the year, I kept ripping on you saying, is it the Godfather? Is it the Godfather? Mm -hmm. But when you insisted that it wasn't the Godfather, I did think Cabaret because that's a fantastic adaptation from 1972. And you're mm -hmm. absolutely right that it is uh, not just a Best Director winner, it is the winningest film in Oscar history to not win Best Picture. And nobody's ever criticized that, even with all the Godfather fanboys. I've never heard a lot of fuss because it was that good. Look, I, I do think Godfather is a better film, but Cabaret is an excellent film through and through itself. I would also consider it a perfect movie. And as a musical when you had the Stanley Donen type of musicals, when you were referring to the stage version, that's more in line with the musical that a lot of people who don't watch musicals think of, and they believe that that type of musical has died, and it's not really been resurrected outside of the occasional niche film like La La Land. But then they don't mm -hmm. realize that stuff like Cabaret exists where it's almost like the new Hollywood rendition and Bob Fosse is so excellent my personal favorite of his is all that jazz and it's the same deal mm -hmm. where it's the the bare bones take on what a musical can be so to see that 
transition from the musicals that put people off of musicals, which is unfortunate because they're great in their own right. But to see it done so well, basically for like anyone who was attached to the new Hollywood movement and Cabaret, I wouldn't say it's like an edgy film or a daring film, but I would say it definitely fits in the new Hollywood mold where it's raw enough. It's, it's visceral enough that it just makes perfect sense, especially that hugely ambiguous, abrupt ending where to me, that's the moment that Fosse won Best Director because that final image sticks in your head because you're like, uh-oh, what does that mean? And that's effective. It doesn't matter if you're up against The Godfather. It, Cabaret is a fantastic film. And I think the thing about the stage show is it has very different characters and different songs and everything like that, but it still maintains the same mood, that ambiguous tone you were talking about and the sort of you don't quite know where you stand. And to me, that's a good adaptation. You don't necessarily have to stick to the details, but you capture the spirit of the original work. Which is often debated. Oh, yes, that's true. Um, have you seen Cabaret, James? I have not. I'll just have to put it on it's the list. It's really good. Yeah. Like, I would say stage show or movie, you can't go wrong. If you're not a fan of musicals, like traditional I Sing Everywhere musicals or operas, Bob Fosse films are the antithesis, and they will make you believe in musicals. Oh, wow. I cannot recommend them enough. But on the other hand, we were talking about Francis Ford Coppola not too long ago, correct? Well, uh, coincidentally, let's get into my pick, which uh, is a film of his, uh, which I'm not picking The Godfather. In fact, when I was thinking, I was thinking of a film adaptation that I didn't like. And, ah... James, I know you're a Coppola fan, and I feel like you're going to want to abandon the podcast after this, but I'm just going to say it anyway, because I've got to be true to myself. I really don't like The the Outsiders. I don't think it's a good adaptation at all. I said Coppola, I knew you were going to say The Outsiders, (laughs) which is totally fine, because Rumblefish is way better. I always forget that. Oh, God. To me, The Outsiders marks... Uh, as much as this is going to annoy a lot of listeners, it marks the beginning of the downfall of, of Francis Ford Coppola for me. Because outside of like Rumblefish and the occasional other film, I don't like what he's done ever since. And The Outsiders, where do I begin? So I did read the book by S.E. Hinton growing up, and I didn't like reading a lot of books. I was a bookworm when I was very young, but once I hit grade three, I thought I was too cool for books. I was busy playing Crash Bandicoot and Pokemon. I just stopped reading. And at that age, I would stop reading after 10 pages or so. But there were a couple of books where I could manage to keep going. In high school, it was 1984. When I was a kid, it was The Outsiders. And I don't know what it was. Maybe it was like my early obsessions with like 60s and 50s cultures and stuff because of like the whole you know the the rival gangs in the in the in the schools and like you know the gelled hair and there's just something about the outsiders where it's like i'm really attached to this book and i'm not the type of person where i believe that any changes of a book in a film form is sacrilegious i don't believe in that at all i believe in perfect alterations from book to screen because they both read very differently. But the outsiders just felt like somebody relaying a story, assuming that you already knew the story. And if you didn't, you have so much missing information. Like so much of the outsiders is basically 
okay, well, you know that here's this part, so here's this part. Or, you know that backstory where we discuss another rival gang where it kind of adds a little bit of history to everything? We're just going to be like, hey, remember that happened? Yeah, it did. And they don't go into it at all, even though it's like a chapter in the book. Like, it's so rushed feeling, and it feels like, and I feel bad saying this, that this is around the time when Coppola wasn't utilizing his all-star casts. He just liked the idea of having them. He did, but I felt like it was wasted outside of like Ralph Macchio and like one or two other people. Like it felt like this was a wasted cast. And I know it's an iconic film because of who got careers out of this film, like a Tom Cruise, for instance, or, um, you know, Matt Dillon, but Patrick Swayze. Patrick Swayze, exactly. There's a lot of iconic names attached to this film. I just don't think it's a very good film. And I, I might be in the minority and I apologize. I don't blame anybody for not liking The Outsiders. I mean, I enjoy it for the most part, but you're right. The ensemble cast wasn't utilized correctly. It was very much, he was trying to make a Hollywood film and you could tell that. But yeah. simultaneously, he was trying to get Rumblefish off the ground and he used that as leverage to do that, which I thought it paid off because that was the real artistic ch- achievement. That's true. And like, if you've seen um, Hearts of Darkness, I believe it's called, it's a documentary about Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now is one of his opuses, but the way that he details that film as this is me trying to make my action film, it doesn't really read that way because it's so much more than that. But like, that's when you know that he has an affinity for Hollywood films. So it's not like, the Outsiders is a foreign concept to him, but it definitely is his Hollywood film that he always wanted to make. Yeah. Too bad post Rumblefish, he kind of went downhill. Jack. <laughs> Jack is Jack is one of those films, and this could be a topic for another day. Films made by iconic directors that just don't make any sense. Like, how did the, the Godfather guy make this? How did the guy that did the conversation think this was okay? But, what was Robin Williams doing there? <laughs> that too. Uh, before Bicentennial, man. His last couple movies that he did in recent years aren't very good either. It was uh, Twixt and Tetro. Yeah. And honestly, I think part of that is in due to the lead men he picked. He worked with Val Kilmer on one and Vincent Gallo on the other. Oh, Vincent Gallo, yeah. And you don't hear about the, the new Francis Ford Coppola movie coming out. He's not, he's less of a big deal now. I'm sorry. I know it's it's unfortunate because like on one hand he's always going to have like you know his prestige because of the four perfect films he made in the 70s but on the other hand yeah he fell off way hard but uh, before we go down that road James I don't know yet do you have a good adaptation or a bad adaptation for this one I decided to pick one that's so bad that I love it oh okay yeah, and it is a uh, 1994's Double Dragon, based on the classic oh. beat 'em up video game series. Oh no, okay. that's awesome! Tell us oh, about yeah. it. <laughs> this was my favorite film 20 years ago. I would always rent it, watch it to death. It's funny because I never owned it. My dad even said, "I'm surprised we didn't just buy the VHS from them." It's just there was something about it, especially, you know, as a kid, kids, especially young boys, we always loved fighting games. And, you know, this was definitely top tier if you had a friend or if you owned the Super Nintendo. But there's just something about it, especially uh, one. It, 
It takes place in a dystopian version of like a post-apocalyptic Los Angeles called New Angeles. And just the way they approach it is so bizarre, especially because it takes place in 2007, which is 14 <laughs> years ago now. That's amazing. And it's great. Like there, there's, they've got a decent core story. You know, it's, it's Jimmy and Billy Lee. They're, they were orphaned as children and they have, you know, a caretaker Satori who teaches them martial arts and cares for them. And then the way it begins is it starts out at a fighting tournament that the Lee brothers are at. And Billy likes to cause trouble. So he kind of like messes around and gets disqualified. And then I forgot what the exchange was, but they end up causing a riot there. So they have to like break out and go home. But as they go through the city, it's, it's riddled with gangs. So they have to deal with that. You know, they have to like go through the city and then they go to their home, which is an abandoned theater house. Oh my God. Satori explains to them about the double dragon because she has the medallion and they're all skeptical of it, of the powers and whatever. And then, you know, it cuts to this kind of evil businessman type. His name's uh, Victor Geisman, I believe, but he goes by Kogashuko. And then, so he goes to try to steal it. And then uh, obviously the tragedy strikes and Satori dies, which isn't really that big of a spoiler. And they, he gets half of the <laughs> necklace and then there's the whole thing is the basically to get him back. And then uh, there's also this other group of kind of vigilante rebellion called the Power Corps, and, uh, which led is led by Alyssa Milano. And she's like the police chief's daughter. Oh, uh, side note, uh, Kogashuko is played by Robert Patrick. Yes. And not a great role for it. Like, he was great at it, but how do you yeah. go from the T-1000 to doing this he has one of my favorite so bad it's amazing lines at the end when like the whole climax is wrapped up and he gets defeated he says something to the effect of if he thought i was bad wait until you meet my lawyer so i was like what oh yeah <laughs> what does that have to do with as a kid i just love this movie for some reason i mean i don't know what it is maybe it was just of how ridiculous it was it was just one of those movies I would always go back to. And I watched it in recent years and I was like, man, this movie's awful, but I think it's still awesome. And, and also the actors that played the Lee brothers. Uh, let's see. It's uh, Mark Dacascos and Scott Wolf. They did a great job. Like, I'm surprised they didn't get work based on their performance of this. And it's also kind of in the mix of movies where the 90s had a lot of, you know, you know, those ninja movies in the 90s that just sort of happened and they came and went. and We never saw ninjas in movies again. Yeah, that was the thing. It was like zombies or superheroes. Yeah, it was. There were so many of them. You had like Beverly Hills Ninja with Chris Farley. Three Ninjas, Surf Ninjas. Oh, yeah. I was three Ninjas, Surf Ninjas. Ninja Turtles. Oh, yeah. Ninja Turtles, obviously. But Surf Ninjas, didn't that have uh, one of Rob Schneider's first performances in it? Yes, it did. Unfortunately. They also played around with like the meta film idea in that. And some some kid was playing on the game based on the movie in the game. Or played it in the movie. They, they had the, the actual arcade machine, and that made no sense because this is like the origin story. Now, I was talking about Surf Ninjas. Surf Ninjas, there's a kid playing a Game Gear, and he's playing Surf Ninjas on the Game Gear in the movie. I guess that was another thing in the 90s, just having people playing video games on themselves, which makes no sense at all in these adaptations. Yeah. So, yeah, that was my pick. I just think it's it's a 90s film, so it's just... it. It's 90s filmmaking to the core. The way the shots are set up cinematography-wise, lighting setups, even the set design. just There was a vibe in the 90s that I don't think will ever be repeated because it is so 
integral to the 90s. I know exactly what you mean. So we've got a, a musical and a video game that's pretty balanced. Yeah, that's true. And 70s, 80s, 90s in chronological order. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I didn't even Go realize us. that. That wasn't even planned. We, we are so professional. Now on to phase two. Are we still that professional? What are we doing for the second half of the episode this week? James, what are we doing? We are going to talk about materials that we think should be adapted. Cool. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I can kick things off. A lot of graphic novels haven't been done fantastically well. Or if they have, it's kind of a niche thing. So in that vein, and that's not a bad thing that they're niche. In that vein, there is one graphic novel that is so niche that I would love, and I hope you guys know what I'm talking about, if somebody adapted the Black Hole series by Charles Burns. Does that ring a bell to either of you? Never heard of it. It is this gorgeously uh, illustrated graphic novel series. I don't know how to explain it too much without giving too much away. It's kind of like a sci-fi version of teenagers realizing the, the, the harm of STDs, but it's not really an STD. It's like a, it's like a, an alien type of life form that kind of passes around to, to each uh, person who possesses it. So it, it's like that discovery of sex and its dangers, but a lot more severe and twisted. But the entire thing is done with such heavy ink that the empty spaces where it's just the paper actually look like they're illuminating off the page. Like it's like a bright blue light, like a fluorescent light. The animation or the illustration style is so incredible. And Charles Burns has done um, a lot of artwork and, uh, and uh, design for like various musicians and shows, including artwork for the Swedish group, the knife and fever race. So, uh, his illustration style is fantastic, and I think it's just such a dark and dismal story that acted as such a huge lens for young readers like myself when I was a young teen reading this thing and like getting the gravity of what unprotected sex could be like and, and other teen anomalies, like just being a teenager, this awkward experience. So that's my pick. Um, I guess I decide who's going to be making this thing. Yes, you do. Okay, I would love it if Aronofsky did this, but I think he would need a different director of photography than what he usually has. I love Matthew Lee Batik, but I don't think he's right in this type of film. I want something a little bit more crazy. So whoever worked with um, Rodriguez on Sin City, that type thing, but with Aronofsky, I think would be nuts. And basically, whoever's the best young talent when this film gets gets made. Because if I say stuff like the Stranger Things kids, they might be too, too old by the time that this comes out. So whoever is young and great at the time, but for now, I would say people like the Stranger Things kids or like Haley Stanfield as like the leads. But otherwise, Aronofsky, I think he would capture the absurdity, the, the disturbing factors of it, but also the the alienation feeling of it so that that is my adaptation that's interesting you mentioned robert rodriguez because he actually acted as cinematographer for all his movies so he could actually 
be the one to shoot this. Oh, I actually didn't know that. So there you go. So I, I don't know. I would prefer Aronofsky directing, but if Rodriguez shoots his own films, bring him on board then as, as DOP. He's saving the budget too. He's the master of, of coming in under budget. Right. That that's true. I don't necessarily like a lot of his films, but the guy knows how to make movies on a shoestring. James, what is your pick? So my pick is a novel I read in high school, and that is Invisible Monsters by Chuck Palahniuk. All right. And for the listeners out there, if you don't know who Chuck Palahniuk is, he's actually the author of the book Fight Club. But Invisible Monsters was his first novel that he was trying to get published, but it was rejected by publishers for being too demented. That sounds like Palahniuk. And reading it, I understand why. I can't remember every single detail of this book for the most part, because one, it's nonlinear, which always makes for a fun book, but it has to deal with uh, an unnamed narrator who she's a model, right? And part of the story is while driving one day somewhere, she mysteriously gets shot mm-hmm. in the face and her jaw's gone. Oh my God. And yeah, it's, it's wild. It's, and then there's, there's other things of, you know, you find out about her, like her brother was kicked out of the house for being gay. Yeah. And her parents are really weird. They say the most bizarre, really twisted things that parents shouldn't say. And then you, you know, part of it is her going to speech therapy with, um, and the therapy person is a trans woman. And then there's also a part where she encounters these three drag Queens who there's all sorts of really interesting things there. It also revolves around her best friend, um, and modeling school who was having a secret relationship with her boyfriend and it's just like this really twisted tale of this person's life. And it, it's very much like his stories and just how nihilistic they are and just wild things happening. And it actually starts off with a, her best friends getting married. It's her wedding day and her house is on fire burning to the ground. It's kind of oh like a, how, it's kind of like a, how do we get here story? And uh, it's been optioned numerous times. Just no one's pulled the trigger on making it. And I'm just really fascinated that that didn't happen. And Fight Club was such a success. After the fact. True. Fight Club wasn't very successful in the beginning. But also, I I don't know what it is. I think it's just, I'm assuming no one wants to finance it. Or it's just, it was just a hassle to put together. Or it's just one of those things where someone bought it and was like, yeah, I might make it. But I've been wanting to read. Uh, there was a follow-up he did. It's not a sequel, but he actually re-released the book called Invisible Monsters Remix, and uh, he added some chapters and he really played up the non-linear part, where he would actually have you start one place and then it would tell you to jump to another section of the book and read. Oh That's wow! Sweet. Okay, I, I, I've always wanted to attempt like a, a meta book like that. Uh, I've heard of a couple like that where it's like you have to like hopped not like a choose your own adventure but like there's like extra stories and like the anecdotes and then it sends you to different pages of the book it's like this whole crazy thing so that's what this is yeah kind of i think it's just to kind of play up the whole non-linear thing you kind of have to go this back and forth that's cool yeah i just thought it was you know it's kind of it's kind of a twisted book and there's some really bizarre things in there but i i just thought it it'd always be a cool movie to see on screen just because I don't know why I've, I've read several of his books and I don't know why I love them so much. Maybe it's just of how like dark he is. And just the fact that he's just willing to go there places where other people won't. Yeah. He's really that way. Who's making this thing. I would probably go with Greg Araki. Okay. Oh, cool. Okay. Primarily because he's a bit odd. 
So I think he could actually handle this material in a way that most people wouldn't. And also, I think it would be a perfect match considering his contributions to the LGBTQ film community. And you deal with a lot of that kind of stuff in this book. But he just has this, you know, I've always loved his movies because, you know, all the surreal aspects, like he has this really obscure Lynchian slant to his dark, like already like dark comedic style. And it also just deals with the kinds of characters that he deals with anyway. You know, I mean, a lot of his weirder films deal with, you know, these characters who almost perceive themselves as high class, even though they're like scum of the earth. And that you kind of deal with characters like that in this book. And then, I don't know, as far as shooting it, I'd probably go with Benoit Debbie primarily because of his work on Spring Breakers. And I think that kind of style would work for this movie, considering the kinds of characters that he introduces and the kind of way they work. He, he could do that kind of like, you know, day glow kind of thing, and it would just work for certain scenes. It's just one of those books. I, and I read this in high school, and I'm, I'm really impressed with the kinds of things I consumed in high school because I had this weird capacity to handle he- like heavy materials. Like I think it was, I don't know if it was ju- my junior and senior year, you know, going back to adaptations, I think I read and watched A Clockwork Orange during that time. Oh, yeah. It is heavy. And the, the book is a wild experience. That's my favorite book of all time. So, yeah, that's my pick. I don't know. I, it's just, you know, something that is always kind of stuck with me. It kind of resonated with me. Uh, you know, I'm always interested in how people come up with stories. So it's like, I'd love to like hear how he came up with this because he always just... I don't know where his brain, how his brain works, but Chuck Palahniuk is just, he's definitely something when it comes to writing. Absolutely. So yeah, that's my pick. Cool. Cool. Well, Rachel, what's yours? I'm glad to hear. Okay, so I'm going to stick with the theme of musicals, and I had a bunch of other ones. You know, I always go between four and five a week, but I was thinking, as I was listening to the musical six, have either of you heard of it? I have not. No, actually, I haven't. Not very well versed in musicals. It's a concert performance of Henry VIII's six wives as they sing about who had it worst being married to Henry. What? That sounds amazing. Yeah, it premiered in the West End last year and then was played in Edmonton, Alberta, of all places. And then it was set to premiere on Broadway the night Broadway shut down after COVID. Oh, no. Horrible timing, but it's a wonderful show. It talks all about how women are excluded from history and the music is ridiculously catchy. And so it's basically just six women performing. Henry never appears. And the director I want for this is Rob Marshall, who directed Chicago. Chicago in many ways resembles like an extended music video. And I think that this concert format of six would lend itself quite well to that. And also it's quite explicitly based on the cell block tango in some parts, and we all know how well Rob Marshall handled that. And of course, you need six very good actresses for the role. What's cool about Six is that each role was inspired by a real-life pop diva. And so you can hear it in their music, maybe a little bit in their life story. So I would want Catherine Baragon to be Beyonce, Anne Boleyn to be Lily Allen, Jane Seymour to be Adele, and Cleves to be Nicki Minaj, and then Catherine Howard played by Britney Spears, and Catherine Parr by Alicia Keys. These were all the singers who inspired the song. They would absolutely kill it, and it would be it would be quite a show, I think. And they would present it sort of similar to how Hamilton did it, like a concert, but um, as a film. That sounds incredible. Like, it's, it's interesting because you come up with so many ideas and it's like, wait, hang on a second. And I know like a couple of hours ago, you're like, wait, I know what it is. I'm quickly going to put this together. But you clearly have it all figured out. Well, I've been listening to six for a year straight now. So 
that also like the original whole six thing sounds brilliant to begin with and it's like that's that's just a shame that you know the pandemic happened and right as soon as it was going to launch because that premise is so fantastic it's beautifully done and you cannot get enough of the music speaking of musicals uh maybe maybe not it is our time for our recommendations of the week rachel is your recommendation perchance a musical no but it is about the tutors so there you go um, so it's called Lady Jane. It's from the mid 80s. And it's one of the very first roles of Helena Bonham Carter. So she's like 20 years old. And Carrie Elwes is in it too. And Patrick Stewart is Lady Jane's dad. Lady Jane was the Queen of England for nine days between Edward and Mary, the children of Henry VIII. And she was basically manipulated by everyone around her. She was maybe 16 years old and she got executed for her trouble. It's very beautifully designed. It's a part of English history that isn't really covered. And Helena Bottom Carter does a great job. Highly recommend. Cool. James, what's your pick? Uh, you know, I'm going to go with an adaptation since that's what the episode's about. I'm going to go with Gus Van Sant's My Own Private Idaho. Oh, it's best. I love that movie. It's so good. I mean, Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix. It's just a great movie. Also, the way he shot the two sex scenes in the movie blew my mind because. When I got to them, I wasn't expecting them to just be still shots. I found that so bizarre. I was like, this is genius. Also, it's a it's a fun take on what was it? Henry the fourth and part of Henry the fifth. Yeah, maybe I'm thinking it the other way around. But yeah, and uh, it's just it's so unfortunate. River Phoenix died so young. Mm-hmm. It's such a promising career ahead of him. And I love the character of Bob, the sort of false staff guy. I also love like so much of the meta stuff where it's like the talking magazines, like they built like magazines the size of people and had like cutouts for their heads so they could talk. Oh yeah. So many crazy ideas in that film. Uh, I'm sorry to break the chain of this whole, you know, adaptation thing, but uh, actually, you know, technically mine's kind of an adaptation now that I think about it. It's been on my mind anyway. Uh, Jane Campion's An Angel at My Table, which is a biographical picture about Janet Frame, who had a really rough life um, before her legacy uh, for, for her writing. And uh, the, the film goes heavily into like uh, how mental health and uh, biological health is treated. If you're impoverished, it's a heartbreaking film with a fantastic lead performance by Carrie Fox, who really hasn't done enough considering how talented she is. And I, I love that film, and I think Jane Campion is a fantastic director, so that's my choice. Got to put that on the list of all the things that I need to watch. <laughs> I would follow Jane Campion anywhere, so that's a great recommend. Yes, and I can't wait for her and her upcoming film. So don't push it away, COVID. You've pushed enough release dates. Let this one stick. But until we go down that road, uh, that was the K-Cut, and now we are going into the L-Cut. 